Welcome to the Move to Value podcast, powered by Chess Health Solutions. The Move to Value podcast is dedicated to helping healthcare providers understand and make the transition into value-based care. We do this through conversations and the sharing of innovative ideas with experts and leaders throughout the healthcare industry. Our mission is to sustainably transform the healthcare experience for the patient, provider, and care team by cultivating a value-oriented, compassionate, and health-aligned community. Today we talk with Dr. Elizabeth Vaughn, Associate Professor and Physician Scientist at the University of Texas Medical Branch, as well as a Texas Community Health Worker Instructor, about her research in health disparities and the role of a community health worker in improving diabetes outcomes in low-income populations. Dr. Elizabeth Vaughn, welcome to the Move to Value podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell me, Dr. Vaughn, how did you become interested in researching the impact of community health workers? Like many things in life, I fell into the interest. Um, I had done international work since I was in high school, and I always had an interest of low-income healthcare, low-income populations. Uh, As a 16-year-old, I went to Ecuador. And, um, you know, I, I was a uh, what we call an army brat. My father was in the army and really a pretty isolated world. And I saw poverty like I had never seen. I realized that Spanish was not just punishment that I had to take in high school, that other people were really speaking Spanish. And, and I really fell in love with the people um, in Ecuador. And then I continued traveling and, you know, fast forward about 20, 30 years now. And I've gone most of Central America, South America, um, and the Caribbean over, and then over to Africa and India. And through those travels, the, the people that I worked with were precious. And yet I always sensed a distance between the people I worked with and, and me. And particularly after I finished medical school and I was now Dr. Elizabeth or Dr. Vaughn, most countries was Dr. Elizabeth, there was a greater separation. So there was a socioeconomic separation, there's a cultural separation, uh, there was an education separation. And yet I saw the locals and, and the way they interacted with local individuals. And, and I thought there's something different here. They seem to be able to reach these individuals. Then when I was in India in 2011, I worked with a group of uh, promotoras or in, uh, more, more uh, referred to as community health workers in India. And I anticipated that I would be the, the physician going into the, the, villages and the towns. And I quickly realized that they wouldn't let me because it was the HIV um, trip. And so I stayed back in the in the clinic and, and I taught this group of promotoras. And I at first was disappointed thinking, man, I, I don't get to have the fun. I don't get to be on the front lines. And yet I quickly saw that teaching blood pressure, teaching hydration, teaching triage, led into a world where they could triage patients appropriately and they could reach far more patients than I could ever reach as as an individual person. And so then I, I realized this is something. And so fast forward another 10 years and I became a community health worker instructor myself, started working and and founded some groups here in Houston, Texas uh, of, of promotoras and have just seen amazing work of, of what they do and how they are able to connect with a patient and bring things out from a patient I never could bring out and offer insight that I would never have. Tell me why, in your opinion, do you feel like folks respond to other individuals in their community more than they would someone who's a a physician, 
someone who who comes in with the technology and the knowledge from first world country why do you feel like there is a barrier there to the to the general population who needs those services it's a great question so there's it, different cultures have have different barriers um i think in the latina culture pleasing in and and kind of letting the the doctor know that that you're trying to do um what they said i think is important i think there's a there's an amount of respect they say you're the doctor you're trying to help me and so if they don't i think there some sometimes there's a feeling of shame there and so my experience with the Latino culture is many times the, the reason they don't, I've had one patient in the you know, 13, 15 years I practiced that just had the medications on the desk, would not take them. <laughs> um, not to say there aren't others, but you know, it, most, it, most reasons that they don't take medications or they don't adhere to treatment are far beyond what I would ever understand or that they might be willing to tell me. And it might be embarrassing. Um, we had a, a patient that, we could not figure out why she would not apply for eligibility at the clinic. You know, it's it's free service. We thought we, you know, the community health workers were helping her and taking and we thought, what's going on with this? And finally, we, the community health worker, not me, uh, learned that she was in an abusive relationship and that the husband would not let her have her tax papers and that's what she needed to prove the income status at the clinic um, to prove that she was eligible for the, the low-income clinic. And, and she never wanted no, me to know that. She wanted me to know that she's trying her hardest to do what I asked her to do. And she really wants her diabetes to get better and her health to get better. It, it's embarrassing. And and maybe they know deep down inside, I will never understand what life looks like in, a, in another world. And truly there's a world, I'll never understand what it means to be undocumented. I won't understand what it means to not speak English as my first language. I won't understand what it means not have transportation to get to the clinic when I need to do so. So there, there's a variety of barriers, but I, I think um, just wanting to do what the doctor wants to do, I think that's one that's a major barrier um, that that they, they they face. That they may feel much more comfortable talking to a community health worker who they trust, who might have the same barriers and often have the same barriers as they have. Sometimes we we forget the the barriers we often think about are you know literacy, transportation, uh, you know language barriers. But we often forget about some of the barriers that are much more challenging, like clinic eligibility, like medication eligibility. For instance, we have medication programs called uh, PAP, Pres Prescription Assistant Programs. And on paper, they're great. But I am not the first investigator to say that there's a lot of holes in the system. Uh, what these are, it's a, it's a way to kind of these expensive meds. So out of the 11 oral diabetes meds, three of them are, are low cost. And so how do you get the other eight to them? So some of them are eligible through this process, but every med has a different process. Sometimes you apply and you might wait a month or two or six or nine months to actually get the med. And then you have to reapply after the next year. And so, you know, put yourself in the shoes of someone who doesn't speak English, who may not use the internet, who doesn't understand all this paperwork and didn't even know that after all of this, they have to renew every year. And, and so just imagine how, and that's one pill of the maybe five or six that you're taking and maybe you have to do this for every different pill. And, and so barriers like that are things we often forget about. And we say, oh yeah, patients can just, they can take these meds. We've got them, they're available. They just apply and it's like, well, Put your, you know, now once you kind of walk those, 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 that path, and I never walked it. I, I'd prescribe it. It was easy, 
And and then I realized when the when the promotoras brought to my attention, well, they did this, this, and this, and they're having X, Y, Z barrier. I realized, oh my goodness, there are numerous barriers to this this, this system. Once it works, it's great, but getting there and getting it to be sustainable is is markedly um, is extremely challenging. So tell me how community health workers go about effectively educating and triaging members of their community. Well, the first way for them to educate is they have to be educated themselves and they have to have some sort of foundation of their own training. Uh, Every state is different. Some states have very rigorous programs, training certifications, recertifications. Uh, Some states do not, but nationally there are not national standards. And so that's one thing that is is ongoing in legislation. So we've got to make national standards uh, for this if we're going to really get these individuals on the, you know, on the line items of a budget. So the first is, you know, what other certifications, what other, so what does it mean to be a CHW in the first place? If I say I'm a physician, you have a pretty good idea of what training I've done. Uh, for a CHW, it's, it's a little more nebulous. So the first after their, uh, second after their education is, is educating actually what they're doing. So I learned what a CHW is in my certification process, but I don't know what HIPAA is. I don't know what PHI is. I don't know what telehealth is or telemedicine is. I have to learn all of these terms. I'm not medical. I've never set foot in a hospital before unless it was for my own care. And so they need to be educated in the realms where they're going to practice. Then they need to be educated in triage. In other words, someone calls them, my blood pressure is 230 over 110. And if they say, what do those numbers mean? We have some problems. We had a, a patient, uh, you know, they often call the community health workers first. They're trusted individuals of the community by definition. And, and you know, by definition, this, this person called, they didn't call their doctor, they didn't call the, the ER. And they said, I'm having this left-sided facial numbness. And thankfully, we had taught our community health workers what triage means, education, and and you know when you know when you call and when you don't. And so, thankfully, the community health worker knew what to do. Directed the person to the ER. They were able to get this person uh, the appropriate treatment before uh, they had long-term sequelae of of what we now know was a stroke. Um, but if a community health worker doesn't understand what blood pressure is or what n- normal numbers are. Um, and we tell them, you know, make sure they check, make sure they recheck. We tell them how to check. Um, they're not doctors and they know that there's a very, very, uh, but they have to understand how to get a history so they can help the patient. So if I were to frame that entire question that you asked, how do we effectively educate in triage? It comes back to the education. It comes back to educating them appropriately and then supporting them. When they have a question, when they're out in the field, who do they call? Who do they get help from? If it's a, you know, Tuesday night at 8 p.m., do they have a way to get someone? And a lot of times that's when they work with the the patients because that's when the patients aren't working. And is there a mechanism? If not, we worry about them doing harm because there's no mechanism of help and support. Yeah, and that leads into my next question of how do we go about verifying that these uh, CHWs are going to do more good than harm for the patient. I realized, you know, and I think we all realize that the, there's definitely a good intent and a willingness to care. But, you know, when you start to jump into cultural norms, that might not always be the best policy for health care. Um, how do we how do we go about verifying that that the information is is accurate that they're providing? 
Yeah, so doing harm, you know, relates to the question we talked to before, making sure they're appropriately trained, make sure they have a, the appropriate education and support. I think that that key piece, a lot of times I'll see in programs, they're trained. Maybe it's a one-time training, maybe it's a two-time training. Oh, we, we've got them certified, we've got them trained, but there's no ongoing support. Uh, you know, when I did residency, you know, that's, you know, three, four years of you're in the hospital and, you know, but you had this system of, you know, the duck and the ducklings to make sure that you weren't going to harm patients. And so I knew whenever I got in the spot where I wasn't comfortable, I always knew I had someone to call 24 seven. And that's, that's critical uh, to do no harm. Uh, I've seen situations in, in, in medical training where residents don't have someone to call. And that's when harm is done because they don't, they don't, know who to call, they don't know who to ask, and, and there's fear there. And so the same the same principle with, with community health workers. The training that we have, we have a, a website now, mipromotoresalud.org, uh, and we've posted our trainings on it, and we're, we're, we're just kind of getting all four segments uh, on it. So in the first training, we have an introduction. This is, okay, what does it mean? Community Health Worker 101, it's, it's like a four-hour course, and this is all your HIPAA and PHI, uh, what does it mean to be a CHW? What does it mean in the specific place I'm working? You know, beyond where's the bathroom? How do I how do I work? What are the kind of the the rules of the land and where I'm working? The second and third training are the immersion. So for us, we work in diabetes. So the first part is we got to learn about what diabetes is. What's an A1C? What's a blood pressure? We got to learn all about, about that. So just the really concrete knowledge. Then the, we take it after that, once they're actually working with patients, uh, then we have an immersion training on what are all the medications? What are the side effects? Because you know they're going to be calling them and saying, my legs are swollen. And if we don't know, if they don't know that Actos can cause that swelling and the patient was just put on Actos, then we, we've got a problem. And so they need to understand what the patients are going. Just like if you're in a, in a visit with, with your doctor and, and, and your family member. A lot of times they tell the family member, particularly if, if the family member is older or needs some help, they tell the family member, make sure you know this and this. Now, the family member typically goes over their heads. But a lot like that, the community health worker almost acts like a family member. And then the last part of it is a sustainability. And so we take questions that community health workers have asked us um, over the years, and we just answer them in the last training. Uh, you know, what about, wh why do I take a statin? These silly rules, they keep changing. I don't understand. I, my LDL's right. It's 90. I thought it had to be less than 100. Well, yeah, but we changed the rules again on you. So, you know, explaining that so when their patients ask them that, uh, they know very clearly they do not make decisions. They are not medical decision makers. They take a history and then they triage appropriately to the, to the appropriate person. And that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about you for a moment. I'd like to hear more about your research with diabetes and underserved patients and how you've used the time model and the simple model and how they differ and, and perhaps which is more effective. Sure. So the time model, it's an acronym, telehealth, uh, integrated community health workers, medication access and education and group visits. And so if you were just to simplify, what is this model? It is a group visit. So patients come to the clinic once a month for their care and they see a physician and they have education. Everything is run by a community health worker, the large group education, small group education. They run monthly for six months. And now we actually have a model that extends to a month nine and a month 12, because we get to six months and we said, we're not quite there yet. So we kept it, it kept it going a little longer. Uh, and that model is, is very much, you have almost the cream of the crop patients. And so it's hard to compare it to our other model, which is a simple model. The simple model is, okay, take everything at a time. You basically make time really simple. 
so in simple, instead of physically coming to the clinic for the group visit education, a small group that's sent on a YouTube uh, modality for about you know five to fifteen minute uh, uh, minute uh, uh, videos, and then you have the community health worker, and instead of them physically sitting down, they call them up and ask them how they how they're doing. In both of those models, we have what's called a feedback loop because inevitably they will see the doctor or they will talk to the doctor in clinic on one day and the next day they call the community health worker and say, I don't have my pills. And we said, but you just saw the doctor. Well, I don't know. And so there's some sort of communication gap that happened there and it happens even though they just saw them. And so that feedback loop goes from the community health worker and there's a champion that then feeds into the clinic who has a champion. They say, hey, patient so-and-so doesn't have their you know, ACE inhibitor, and now we need to, you know, what happened? Oh, I thought we were supposed to put this at Walgreens. We called them into the wrong place. So, you know, a lot of times it's just an easy communication gap. And that feeds back to the community health worker and they can tell the patient. What usually happens is I don't have my pills. I call the clinic, I get voicemail. They call the patient, the patient's phone's been disconnected. They don't have enough data. So they wait for three months to get an appointment, have high blood sugar the entire time, finally go see the doctor and hope it gets right this time. If not, they wait another three months and the same cycle continues. And, and you know, we see in, in, in this population, the A1Cs or the, or the glucose levels, they go up and down and up and down and up and down from really controlled to really bad, really. And, and I thought, why in the world is that? And I, you know, I did a study one time, I just looked at patient notes and I thought, oh, that makes sense. They're on their meds, off their meds, on their meds, off their meds. And a lot of times the gap is, like we talked about before, the medication eligibility process, or it's also just communication gaps that they have. So what's better between the two of them? It's hard to compare because they're a little bit apples and oranges where the time, these are patients who are motivated to come to clinic and they typically have transportation to get to clinic. They have more resources typically. Um, we see an A1C drop, you know, 0.5 is considered significant. We see a drop typically of two to two and a half. In the simple model, we see a lower drop. These are patients though, that's more of a kind of opt out, like, hey, we're running this program. If you don't want to join it, no need to. And they, oh, sure, I'll do it. So these are not your cream of the crop patients. These are the patients that are, well, what if they can't come to clinic? What if they don't want to do a group visit? How do we reach the people who are maybe less motivated or don't have transportation or work a lot? So these A1C drops are typically one, one and a half, still clinically significant and still a nice drop. Um, and the good thing about the simple model is it's much more scalable because it's not an intense monthly come to the clinic. You can run it with two, three, four times the amount of people that you could run in the time model. So both of them are good models. I don't have a bias. I like them both. <laughs> I think they're both great for it, but it really depends on the clinic situation and the clin depends on the patient situation. But simple was named simple for the reason. It's simple. With this patient population, how has deploying community health workers on the front line changed outcomes? Yeah, there's a lot of literature out there about changing diabetes outcomes. And there's a many, many interventions, you know, educational interventions, medication interventions, and and so on. I thought, you know, what is CHW is what's different? You know, why have a CHW in in this this part when there's other literature that shows we could do other things? Um, and you know, we don't compare these arms typically. We typically have different studies, so it's hard to compare them. But in, in looking back at some of the things that we've done, um, the community health workers really enable whole person care. And a lot of the diabetes studies are done in the 24 week period, so there's six month studies and both you and I know diabetes doesn't end in six months. It's a disease of a lifetime. And 
if we don't solve or work on whole person care, we're not gonna have anything that's sustainable. So what CHWs enable and help with are sustainable care. In other words, I can't cut my head off from my body. If I have anxiety and I have depression, I'm not really motivated to take my pills. On the flip side, if I'm overweight, obese, and I am always tired, I'm, I don't feel good. So mental health takes, and, and so you can't disconnect them. So the way your body is physically affects you mentally, the way you're mentally affects you physically. And CHWs are really able to dive into the emotional barriers, the mental health barriers that often we don't have time to in clinic, or we just don't have the trust and relationships that we, we could in clinic. Um, you know, I, I was in, a, in Detroit, I love Detroit, a while back, and there was a free clinic and there was a, a, a physician, he said, I just don't understand it. We give them free pills and the, and the patients have free care and they still don't take their pills. Well, I knew that area of Detroit that he was working in because I worked there myself doing some volunteer work. It was a very dangerous area of Detroit. And I said, you know, they recently took their street lights out. So you walk home, everything's in the dark. The most dangerous area, one of the most dangerous areas in Detroit. If you're thinking about someone chasing you with a knife and if you're going to make it home alive, you're probably not thinking, did I take my metformin today? And so and if we're not addressing some of these socioeconomic barriers and safety barriers and just key things that we need to be a human being, patients don't really think a whole lot about their health care. So that's a key element is, do you feel safe? Do you feel secure? Do you have trust? Do you have worries? Are you sad? And those are key things to us being like, okay, now I want to take care of myself. I want to live healthier. I want to do what I need to do to have a healthy life. One final question, you know, Chess does, we, we are in the value, value-based care space, and that's where we live. That's where we work. And we've, we're always trying to figure out solutions to problems that's going to alleviate all kinds of stressors on the provider, the care team. We're, we're trying to make a really a wellness-centered community. So how do you see the role of the community health worker enhancing value-based care? So value-based care, in my mind, is sitting around quality more than quantity. If, if I were to take a a stab at, at, at a very low level definition of it. Um, and CHWs, that's like the definition. That's what they do. They are quality. You know, they offer insights to barriers. They enhance communication. They provide clarification. You know, a lot of medicine is really straightforward. Don't get me wrong. Medical school wasn't a walk in the park. But, you know, I tell some of the residents and trainees you know, I said, you can have a, a brilliant plan, a scientific plan, you know, that's just amazing and why they're taking this and physiologically why it works in their body. And, you know, but if they don't take it, your plan's worthless. Then do a thing. And a lot of times in medicine, particularly in primary care, particularly in our chronic disease management, we have great plans and really smart people making really, really good plans. But if that plan is not implemented successfully and sustainably in the patient, it hasn't helped the patient and it hasn't helped the, the healthcare system as a whole. 
And so community health workers are able to be almost like I, one of the slides I show them when I'm uh, teaching them, you know, I find I always recruit a group of people and tell them about CHWs. I have a picture of a spy and a detective. I said, you're detectives, you're, you figure out what's going on. You dig deep, you ask, you learn, and you do it in a loving, kind, compassionate way because you may be facing those barriers too. You may get it. And that I think is the is a critical point of what community health workers do. You know, we talked about the PAP, the or PAP medications earlier. And then we had a patient that came to us that her sugar was 400. We thought, oh my goodness. And we had just seen her. <laughs> and and she said, you know, the community health worker called, oh my gosh, she's 400. And apparently the police were at the house and all sorts of social stuff going on. So she was able to give us insight of, of, of what was going on and why she wasn't taking the meds. And she had just told the doctor a few days before that, sure, I'll take my insulin. Sure, that's, you know, I'll, I'll get it. To, but she didn't tell the doctor, I can't afford the insulin. Again, that gap, I don't want to tell them. I'm embarrassed. I know you're giving me the cheap $25 insulin at Walmart, and I still can't even afford that. And I'm embarrassed about that. So she said, okay, took the prescription and left. Well, she calls the community health worker because she trusts them, 400. And the community health worker, through the feedback loop, reported it to the clinic. And the clinic said, but we've had insulin sitting here for months for this patient. And she hasn't come and picked it up. It's the expensive insulin, Atlantis. I don't know why. We've been trying to call her and call her and she won't answer the phone. Back to the CHW. Oh, I guess she just ran out of minutes, didn't have data, tells a patient. So that patient's A1C, controlled A1C is less than seven. She started the program around 12 or 13. She's about 6.5 now. And it was just getting her on her meds. It, it, it wasn't, it's not rocket science. So you look at, you know, how does that help value-based care? Well, my goodness, that's, that's communication, you know, but it's also trust and it's perseverance. And they offer all of that um, that many, many individuals can't offer on the medical team because they just don't have the insight and sometimes the patience um, to offer that to the, to the individuals. You know, one thing that, and I say probably the most important thing that I read over and over and over again with community health workers is sustainability. How do we get these programs? Um, you know, back in the 60s, there was an act that allowed CHWs to be part of grants and everything else. And I and I thought, oh my goodness, that was in 1962. And still one of the primary ways that we're funding these community health worker programs is from 1962. That's a long time ago. And we haven't made a huge amount of change. And I've realized in these programs, because that's how I fund the community health workers, how do we turn this into being a line item? You know, I need in my my clinic where I'm starting the clinic, I need doctors, I need nurses, I need social workers, I need therapists, I need community health workers. That's part of the, the medical treatment team. And I hope that we're able to shift that vision in the U.S. I hope we're able to agree upon national standards of communicate of community health workers. And so we can move forward. OK, define them until we define them. It's hard to move forward with a standard. Define it, standardize and put them on as part of the healthcare team. Medicaid, it, now there's uh, 29 of 48 states that have uh, that Medicaid, uh, that utilize Medicaid funding for incorporating community health workers. And so that's a, that's a big step. Medicare also moving forward uh, to include community health workers. Geriatric care is a great area to incorporate community health workers. Communication gaps that we've discussed uh, during the podcast here. Uninsured individuals, how do we do that? 
individuals who don't have Medicaid, it's a whole other podcast. But you know, thinking through how do we make these programs sustainable? How do we keep these individuals who are extremely valuable, who take a burden off an individual patient, but also a, a, a large burden off the healthcare system? How do we keep them? How do we keep them around? How do we stop doing this? I'm going to train you for three years and then you have to go start all over again with the next grant. I'm going to train you for five years, start all over. You know, how, how do we stop that cycle that we've been doing since the 60s? And, and so that's my hope is that is that we'll keep moving. I hope that the that individuals are continue to be aware of the value of community health workers and, and certainly the cost effectiveness of community health workers. I, I hope that message is is expanded. I hope others are aware and we can keep this going and make a sustainable resource in our healthcare systems. Well, we certainly will help you spread that message loud and clear. I appreciate that. Dr. Elizabeth Vaughn, thank you for joining us today on the Move to Value podcast. Thanks so much, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Move to Value podcast powered by Chess Health Solutions, where our mission is to sustainably transform the healthcare experience for the patient, provider, and care team. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. As always, you can head over to movetovaluepodcast.com to sign up for the email list, as well as check out all the resources in the show notes. If you are interested in continuing to hear about value-based care and how it impacts you, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, we would love it if you would share the Move to Value podcast across social media and leave a rating and review. See you next time.